0: Jonathan Zapp of zapporacle.com. I just deleted the first 25 seconds of this, but I'll do my best to recreate those. Uh, this work I'm not introducing in the usual way because it, it plays a very special role in my life. Uh, this is a reading of the first two chapters of Parallel Journeys and a little bit of an introduction to uh, what it all means to me and in relationship to the muse. Uh, may give some insights into the creative process and... You might find something of interest in it. Uh, No other creative task has preoccupied me so long. Um, Some of the experiences leading up that that Parallel Journeys is inspired by began in childhood. And the story itself, the idea of writing Parallel Journeys, occurred to me when I was 20 years old in 1978, if you can believe that. And it occurred to me after writing a college philosophy honors paper that's still on the website. It's called Archetypes of a New Evolution. And that was it was in the course of writing that paper uh, that I, I didn't call it the Singularity Archetype in the paper, but that's what it was about. And that's obviously a theme I've been exploring ever since. But um, after the paper was completed at the end of my senior year, um, immediately thereafter, entering the summer of my life outside the academic world, I realized that in addition to writing more nonfiction about the singularity archetype, that the most important thing I could do, the thing of the greatest value to the collective, this is just what it felt like as a global intuition, Was to explore the singularity archetype in the form of a fantasy fiction epic and that that would allow me to have my deepest experience of it and to communicate it in the most vivid way and this was such a clear intuition that it would be something like what Aleister Crowley would call true will it's sort of when you know your life's purpose and it's just very clear and there's no having any doubt about it and I've been lucky to kind of um, have that sort of a, a guiding star in general in my life. I've always kind of known things that I had to do from a pretty early age and Parallel Journeys is the the big mountain that I have yet to climb even though I've written some of it and have worked on it quite a bit. Um, it's I'm not aware of any other project that is as meaningful or as important to me, and that has so much left undone. And it's also um, been some of my most intense peak experiences have been in the course of writing Parallel Journeys. And when you write fantasy uh, that really comes to life, or where you're really stepping through a portal, that is an incredible peak experience. I made a case for why that's so important, and why fantasy writing and reading, as extravagant as this idea will sound, are actually um, things that are right at the cutting edge of human evolution. Because human evolution, or evolution on the planet, one of the, the continuous themes, even though a neo darwinist would object to the idea of theme, I'm a theme on a teleological evolution, and, and that's explained in my book. There's a chapter on the different evolutionary theories. Teleology is making a little bit of a comeback, or it's sometimes called orthogenesis. And it's the direction of evolution, in a lot of ways, is toward the growth of interiority. And novels even relate to the word novelty. Were a huge developmental milestone that a, a monkey could create such a complex interior artifact that then other people who could read, um, it's essentially a telepathic artifact, would have this intense and complex interior experience. And for various reasons, and I explain some of this in an essay that's also another podcast called Pushing the Envelope, Boundary Expansion into Novelty and in Personal and Evolutionary Contexts, I make a case for why I believe uh, fantasy writing and reading, movies would also play an extremely important role, are not escapism but incredibly significant things. I won't go into that whole case here since I've made it elsewhere. I also discuss some of the history of parallel journeys in my essay and also podcast on creativity called The Path of the Numinous, Living and Working with the Creative Muse. So I'll try and and say the things that are not um, covered in those those writings. Parallel Journeys is um, I'm only presenting the first two chapters, because they're the only ones that I feel are at the right level of quality at this time. Uh, The other stuff in book one needs to be rewritten, I have many editing notes, but I've got a lot of rewriting to do. But it's also sort of a moving target because things in the story change to where drastic rewriting still needs to occur. Uh, parallel journeys could be one of those famous things, like the green light that uh, Gatsby sees off his dock, uh, where, where his beloved Daisy lives. It sort of ever keeps blinking at you and ever recedes from your grasp. And if that's the case, you know... Um, okay with that, uh, I'm a little disappointed, but maybe, you know, maybe it'll turn out that what goes on in parallel journeys is something that I have to live out rather than write about. Um, or maybe I will complete it. Uh, that's certainly my intention. Uh, no one is able to, no writer is able to be sure they will complete a writing task because death can take us away from it at any time. And we see, for example, with the Wheel of Time books um, that um, Robert Jordan had to have another author complete them, apparently did an excellent job. And this also happened to Frank Herbert, who wrote the Dune books, but passed away at 65, while well, in the midst of the sixth one. And then his son, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson attempted to complete the series, and, and I think did a superb job, but it, you know, no doubt a different job than the one that Frank Herbert would have done with book six and with the many other books. I think there are a total of 18 books now. So uh it's it's intimidating uh as a task because I do believe some that there is something to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours and with non-fiction writing I have way more than 10,000 hours maybe it's 20,000 hours um, though I still feel even with that my writing style is still maturing and getting better and I'm now 55 years old when it comes to fiction writing I do not have 10,000 hours some of the nonfiction writing uh, time um, sort of transfers over, because I don't write just dry nonfiction. Some of it has fiction-like style to it. <clears throat> um, but some of it doesn't, and especially because Parallel Journeys is written in an extremely labor-intensive style. Hopefully, it's not labor-intensive to read. Uh, there, there is a very dense section. In, in uh, chapter 2, uh, it's the most dense section of the book that describes an encounter with the mind parasites. hopefully you'll stay with it past that section. There's no other section quite as complex or dense uh, or difficult um, in the complexity of what's described. Uh, the first person narration um, also is a challenge uh, for fantasy writing that's difficult to sustain. And um, However, with the first two chapters, I feel like I'm close to, close to succeeding with the kind of writing style and so forth. So, um, just rereading the, the first two chapters recently, I read them aloud to a friend when we were driving back from the Rainbow Gathering in Montana. I realized, you know, wow, these, these two chapters actually work. And um, it gave me a little bit of faith because normally I might listen to Parallel Journeys and just see all the, the work that yet remains. Also in February, um, I had an experience going to Tucson and the Gem and Mineral Show there, where pretty much as soon as I got off the bus, a giant portal opened into Parallel Journeys and a whole second book basically played out in my imagination in the ensuing three weeks. And I have notes on that, but of course that stuff has not been written and still feels like a bit of a moving target in the imaginal plane. It could continue to mutate and change. Um, parallel Journeys, as I wrote about in The Path of the Numinous, is um, the form of writing that was most desired, but where a portal into it um, was often the least available. Um, and it's a, it's a project that seems entirely out of ego control. Uh, the things that open up portals into it may have to do with the whole conduct of my whole life, and. Uh, destiny, and and this kind of thing. It's not something that I can quite control. And especially when it comes to new um, writing in parallel journeys, that's something that has to happen. It's not just something that I can make happen. And this is really writing that, if you read my document, Pre-dawn window zone, this is writing that really requires me to go to sleep at 8.30 p.m. and get up between 3 and 4 in the morning. Because the pre-dawn hours are this magical zone when uh, most of the community is asleep or in dreams, and that's really when the high-level fantasy writing can occur. But unlike some non-fiction project, to write parallel journeys, I have to really be in the zone. In other words, I need to usually have done everything right the day before as far as diet and exercise. So it's kind of like an athletic event in that it requires more concentration than anything else. And so, um, however... Um, even though it sounds like it's something that's so rarely available there actually is a lot of available work if i were to start getting myself into a phase of getting up at that hour in the morning and working on the revisions so i do have plenty of things that i can do related to that right now it's the summer the summer tends to be an experiential ext- more extroverted mode for me uh, the fall and winter seem to be the the times that most naturally draw one inward and the perfect time to create that starting momentum toward a great fantasy work I've certainly seen that pattern before and so I have a huge amount of work uh, cut out for me and that's really <clears throat> what I feel called uh, to do more than anything else uh, another somewhat frustration with it perhaps as a narcissistic personality type is with all these other writing projects I'm usually able to complete them Um, and turn out quite a few of them and turn them into podcasts and publish them online. However, if I were working on parallel journeys, a lot of that output would be reduced. I'm sure nonfiction things would still keep coming up and I would still be writing new oracle cards and a little bit of this and that, but uh, it would basically... I wouldn't be working on both of those things in the same day because once I've sort of used up that writing ability in a three-hour intense zone, then I'm probably done for that kind of writing or even nonfiction writing for the day, except like an email or something that's I could just toss off. So this is another uh, thing that I've questioned is, um, should I serialize it a little bit? Should I keep putting pieces online? Will anybody follow that? Parallel Journeys does have some followers online. So uh, for those people they are getting to hear a little bit of an introduction to where things stand now with the project. Well, I guess that's about enough introduction, and now I'm going to uh, throw in a few moments of silence, perhaps, and get into reading the first two chapters. Parallel Journeys. Experiences, this is chapter one, experiences past a certain level of strangeness are charged in slippery things like electric eels. You try to catch them in a net of words, but the holes are too big and they slip through. And yet some inner urgency insists that you keep trying. And when I've looked into that inner urgency, I found that it has an outer aspect as well. There's a sense of others looking over your shoulder who want to know what you've experienced and urge you, however imperfectly, to tell the story. The journeys recounted here, journeys into parallel realities, happened over many years and seasons of my life. Some I've recorded as long journal entries, and others took the form of emailed narratives sent to a close friend. Many times I've tried to assemble these documents into a cohesive form, but found that their tone, tempo, and texture were all so different that it was hard to hold it together in a way that would make sense to others. Sometimes I tried too hard to be clever and allowed turns of phrase to distract from content. Other times I remembered the essence of things that others said to me, but couldn't capture the way they were said and was forced to use my own words. Perfection, it's been said, is the enemy of the possible. None of us knows how much time we have left, and if I try too long to perfect the words, the story may never get told, and the electric eels will disappear into the abyssal depths of the ocean. The net of words I weave may be full of holes and imperfections, but somewhere out there I sense that there are a perceptive few who have had their own encounters with high strangeness, and who, even in the loose net of my words, will sense the residual charge of the electric eels and peer through the abyssal depths into the parallel journeys narrated within these pages. I guess that was actually an intro. This is chapter one. And speaking of all the things I just said there about time, that's a big factor in my mind. Most great fantasy works. People start in their early 40s. I'm 55, probably in better shape than the average 55-year-old, and I do have two parents making it into their 90s, so I'm hoping that uh, the years will be kind enough to me to allow me to complete this. Chapter 1, email sent late summer of 2001. I know I may be exceeding the limits of whatever credibility I have in your eyes, but I feel an intense inner compulsion to tell you about the anomalous experience that occurred to me just last night. As you learned from my earlier email, I am now in Seattle, where I am continuing my traveling fundraising canvas for the Pinyon Mesa Animal Refuge, a nonprofit that rescues animals, especially big cats, from guaranteed hunts and other abusive situations. I was out knocking on doors, annoying people in the privacy of their own homes, as Danny, my canvassing mentor, used to describe it when we canvassed together for a well-known environmental group. It was a rainy evening, and Seattle was troubled by a thick fog, a fog that had the mind-numbing feeling of a bankrupt dot-com executive lying etherized upon a table. Canvassing for an animal refuge can be frustrating work in the best of circumstances, but when is it a rainy, when is it, it is a rainy Friday night? And most everybody is out on the town except elderly, shut-ins of various sorts, or people so exceptionally rude but there was no place else for them to be on a Friday night except home, waiting. Waiting for days, or even weeks possibly, for some canvasser to knock on their door, some dutiful innocent canvasser on whom they could vent the bitter poisons of a life of sleep and irritability, an incarnation spent in workplaces lit with fluorescent lights, and a private life that consisted mainly of cable and heavily processed food. A life of that much misery and boredom had to be someone's fault. And that someone very likely was this unwanted person standing on their doorstep with a clipboard. These were the kind of people that were lying in wait for me on this fog-obscured night. And so, to protect whatever healthy tissues remained within, I retreated inward. I allowed my waking self to be somewhat cloaked and mechanized, shrouding myself in that trance-like disassociative state that we canvassers call autopilot. Autopilot. Autopilot allows the canvasser's body to go through all the motions of canvassing while his spirit body is off doing something else such as thinking about a troubled romantic relationship or wondering if there was anything to the cycle shift of the Mayan Long Count calendar December 21st 2012. And it was actually this last item that I happened to be thinking of as I opened the chain link gate of a rundown house with an infinitely bland early 70s look to it. When I listened to inspiring guests on the Art Bell show, that was coast to coast AM before George Norrie, 2012 would sometimes light up in my mind like fireworks on a clear summer night. But now, after a couple of hours of walking around in the rain and getting dissed by the few people that were home, I was starting to have doubts about a lot of things. And I wondered if 2012 might not turn out to be a big fat wet cardboard dud like Y2K. But just as I had that doubting thought, my eyes were dazzled by a striking synchronicity. Just above the door of this house, in the dull gold of brass numerals, was the address, 2012. I stopped for a moment and felt shock reverberating through my body. No, it wasn't a devastating shock like a lightning bolt. It was more like the static electric shock you might get walking across a thick carpet, but lasting a moment or two longer. And then a moment after the shock registered, a skeptical inner voice offered an entirely pl- plausible prosaic explanation. Perhaps I had subliminally registered the large brass address numerals, and this had unconsciously influenced my scattered thoughts to a light on the 2012 topic. This highly plausible version of events deflated 2012 into a parlor trick played on me by my own unconscious to deliver a shock that would at first seem miraculous, but would... Moments later be revealed as a mundane case of unconscious influence. Anyway, these were the dissonant, somewhat darkly-toned thoughts cascading through my mind when I knocked on the door of the 2012 house. A moment after I knocked, I registered several visual clues that this was a door probably better left undisturbed. My mind had been so caught up in the Mayan issue that I had failed to notice the most obvious and classic signs that a highly conservative elderly person lived in this house. The stoop was covered in threadbare astroturf, and windowsill shelves held dusty knickknacks of the sort where a ceramic Eiffel tower might stand next to a puffy large-eyed plastic child whose outspread arms held a little placard that read, I love you this much, Grandma. Sure enough, a gaunt elderly woman in a shabby bathrobe opened the door the three inches allowed by the security chain, and stared at me. Her eyes were clouded with cataracts, and she gazed at me with a look of uncomprehending irritability that teetered right at the edge of senile paranoia. There was a hearing aid in one ear, but something told me that the batteries had been dead for a long time. Her appearance may sound unprepossessing, but her face was ground zero for a deja vu shock wave. My mind reeled as Autopilot delivered the opening line of my canvassing wrap. I'm sorry to bother you, my name is Andrew, and I'm doing a fundraiser for the Pinyon Mesa Wildlife Refuge. Mr. Anderson from the what? From the Pinyon Mesa Wildlife Refuge? I don't need any wildlife, I'm on a fixed income. But I was no longer listening to what she was saying, because now I knew with absolute certainty where I had seen this old woman before. It was in the Winn-Dixie supermarket in suburban Fairview, Maryland, in 1965. It was the second day of a week-long visit with my cousins when I saw her, an old woman who happened to be a perfect copy of an old woman I had seen in the Associated Supermarket on Kingsbridge Avenue in the Bronx just three or four days earlier. Even though I was a child, I understood immediately the significance of what I had seen. It was that shattering archetypal moment when you see through the illusion When you see that you've been had that things are not at all what they are trying to seem somehow i had always sensed that a lot of people probably most people and possibly even all people i sometimes wondered in solipsistic paranoia were what i called extras or walk-ons they were people somehow contrived to fill in crowd scenes to take up most of the empty space on subway trains to mutely walk down sidewalks holding lumpy plastic shopping bags in the hot sun. But if you looked at their eyes, if you looked close, there was no one there. They had those empty glass doll's eyes, and everything about them was mechanical. I had always sensed this, but until that moment, I had never had absolute proof of the deception. But what was I to do with that proof when I was still a small child? I continued down the supermarket aisle, doing my best to hold up my end of the great facade, because I was afraid to confront the deception. If I were to call it out, if I were to have shouted at the top of my lungs in the supermarket that I knew it was all a great deception, I felt that I would bring down a great evil upon myself. I sensed, correctly I believe, that the powerful will behind the great deception would not allow me to expose it if I were to step out of line There would be immediate and devastating vengeance visited upon me in my mind's eye i saw the supermarket lady emitting a piercing high-pitched scream and when she did so all the other extras would stop whatever they were doing and also emit the same high-pitched scream i would be the only one not making the scream and they would quickly circle around me and engulf me and now here was the old supermarket lady again But her physiognomy, her apparent age, was a perfect replica of how she appeared decades earlier. So much had changed in me since I had last encountered her, and the fearful accommodation of the deception that characterized my childhood had been replaced by the will to know, the will to see through the deception, no matter what the cost. I stared into her eyes in a way that let her, and everyone, know that the game was up, that I had seen through the great deception, and was not going to accommodate the illusion for even a single second more. Instantly, the old woman, the walk-on, dropped her facade. The senile scowl disappeared along with the cataracts, and there was a high-pitched ringing or humming in my ears. I couldn't quite hear what was said to me, but I knew that I had been invited into the house and stepped into a living room whose only illumination was a black-and-white television with a test pattern on it. And then I had that acutely embarrassing sensation you get when you realize you've been way off in guessing someone's age, or perhaps have even mistaken their gender, because I saw that the old woman was not actually the supermarket lady, or even an old woman, but a pale schoolboy with large sorrowful gray eyes. He wore a white button-down shirt, narrow dark tie, and gray trousers, and his neck was weirdly long and elastic. His style of dress seemed to be that of an English schoolboy from an earlier era. There was an uncanny intelligence as well as sadness in his eyes. Automatically, I asked, "Um, Are you interested in helping endangered wildlife? Yes, I am. He had a slight British accent and spoke in a manner that was confident, formally polite, but also deeply sincere and humble. His tone and answer were so unexpected, I wasn't sure what to say next. You are? Yes, he replied with the identical tone, sincere, confident precision. You want to help endangered wildlife. His manner unsettled me, and I was lapsing into redundancy. It's the main reason I came here. This last statement puzzled me into another silence. I replayed it slowly in my mind. It's the main reason I came here. He sounded so sure of himself, but I couldn't quite get a handle on what he meant. Please come in. He turned and gracefully, almost elegantly, motioned for me to follow. We stepped out of the darkened living room and into a long wide corridor of polished brown marble, magnificently decorated with Persian rugs of deep colors and intricate patterns. Crystal chandeliers glimmered from the high arched ceilings. There were beautiful cabinets of mahogany and beveled glass that were filled with what appeared to be antique nautical instruments, sextant, astrolabe, chronometer, ship's compass, globes of various kinds, a complicated apparatus of gears and spheres of precious stone. Was it an ori or a simulacrum of some other solar system? I followed the boy down the long corridor into a room that looked like the private study of a 19th century English gentleman. There were floor-to-ceiling bookcases filled with leather-bound volumes of fine, old, hand-bound books of the sort with marbleized endpapers and gilt titles. There were draperies of wine-dark velvet and a chandelier of fine, old crystal. The boy motioned me toward a comfortable chair while he sat behind a large desk with an elaborately carved oriental dragon motif. On the desk was a single object an exquisite mechanical clock, a grand complication, I believe they are called, with numerous hands and dials that showed phases of the sun and moon. And God only knew what else, for this clock had alchemical symbols or glyphs, where one expected to see Roman numerals. The clock was housed in a crystal bell that revealed a whirring galaxy of gears, jeweled bearings, and other tiny parts in complicated movement. Would you care for something to drink? The boy motioned to a small marble-topped serving cabinet in which there were glasses and a prismatic decanter of an amber liquid. I assumed it contained some costly brandy and wasn't sure about the legality of accepting alcohol from a minor. It's non-alcoholic. The boy seemed able to read my mind. Well, in that case, he carefully poured me a drink and handed me a glass tumbler of the amber liquid. It tasted golden, fragrantly herbal like a mixture of sparkling cider, currants, maple syrup, and cinnamon. Its effect was warming, relaxing, enlivening in a way that was more like an elixir than a stimulant. This seemed magical and uncanny until I remembered that nowadays exotic herbal concoctions could be found in every corner store. I took another sip of the drink and put my clipboard filled with animal photographs on the desk. So, how long have you been interested in helping endangered wildlife, I asked. Oh, a very long time, he replied. It's only in recent years that we've allowed ourselves to intervene. This seems an odd, even weirdly grandiose thing for a schoolboy to say, but his manner did not seem to suggest pretentiousness so much as a world-weary, poignant sadness. What kind of endangered wildlife are you interested in? He looked puzzled by my question, and his eyebrows arched quizzically. Your kind, of course, and all the other kinds of wildlife in this realm, because it's all endangered, isn't it? This was an odd way of putting it, but I knew what he meant. I had often been struck by the irony of talking about certain endangered species, when really the whole planet was in an ecological crisis, and almost every species besides cockroaches and bacteria were endangered. Are you interested in volunteering to work with the animals? There was a long moment of silent eye contact. He had a boy's face, but his large gray eyes seemed so old. The moment of eye contact seemed to stretch on and then there was a complete lapse in my memory. I guess this is what some people call missing time because I found myself opening the chain link gate of the 2012 house. I knew I should leave. I remembered what had happened until that moment of eye contact with the boy but there was just a blankness inside about any transition i closed the gate and walked down the street feeling a bit stunned it felt like i had been in a hall of mirrors and there was a sense that i had been hypnotized or put into some kind of trance and made to see a series of visions and my questions to the boy when i reviewed them in my mind did not quite make sense it was as if i was not getting what was happening to me. Had I been in shock or somehow put into an hypnotic state? I also had the feeling that the supermarket lady was pulled out of my own memory. There was a feeling that I had been tested or evaluated and the test had all been various forms of simulation and illusion. I looked in my clipboard from my map so I could make a mark where the house was and I discovered that in the clear plastic envelope where I put donations, there were now several, seven very new-looking hundred-dollar bills that I had never seen before. Whatever illusions or manipulations I had been exposed to, it had at least been a very successful night of fundraising. Chapter 2 Several months had passed. Summer had turned into fall, and I had returned to Colorado, but was still canvassing for the Pinon Mesa Wildlife Refuge. The intervening months had been tumultuous. Living on the road, I'd been traveling in a very small RV, seems to generate drama. There'd been adventure, hardships, high highs, and low lows. I made some new and lasting friendships, but there were also long stretches of lonely solitude as I traveled to new towns. Days would pass without contact with friends except for the occasional email. And speaking of email, It occurs to me that in the first chapter of the story, I never really introduced myself because that whole chapter was originally an email I sent to a close friend. I'm more used to describing others rather than myself, but I'll give you a little bit of personal context. I'm in my mid-30s and a year and a half from a major life change. Before the present phase of being a canvasser, wandering the, the country in an RV, I wondered, and I incorrectly gave a date earlier, of 1965 for the supermarket. I think that was meant to be like 1985. Uh, I just realized that. Um, before the present phase of being a chemist or wandering the country in an RV, I wandered the country pursuing a career many would consider enviable, and that for many years absorbed me completely and enthusiastically. I was a photojournalist, mostly freelance. Who specialized in subcultures. I would spend months hanging out with obsessive video gamers, then the next few months living near the Pennsylvania Dutch Amish, then a few months immersed in the vampire subculture of a couple of large cities, and so forth. It sounds fascinating, I know, and it was. Also not to affect false modesty, I was extremely good at it. My photographs have made it into galleries and museums, my articles have won awards and have been printed in prestigious magazines. A number of tempting offers of work came in the very week that I quit. Everyone thought I had the greatest job in the world, and for many years I agreed with them. But some very strange things happened to me a year and a half ago, and when they did, I could feel the inner tectonic plates shift, and suddenly I was no longer willing to always be the visiting anthropologist peering in on other people's lives through camera viewfinders. For years I had felt that my photojournalism was practice for something else, and suddenly I felt ready for the something else, and burned out on what I'd been doing. I had always been a loner and an introvert, but I could also come out of myself to be intensely present with those I encountered as a photojournalist. People would feel my intense interest and curiosity, and often revealed their secrets to me. But after the weirdness occurred 18 months ago, perhaps I'll write about it later, I knew that I wasn't really interested in the next subculture. I was interested in something else, something that would be impossible to write an article about and which had not fully taken form. I also felt done with the role of observer, the life behind the viewfinder, listening carefully for memorable lines of spoken dialect. I still kept a camera with me 24 hours a day, but the role of being a witness and documenter of other people's lives was no longer workable for me. I was being pulled into a journey that did not take did not take an, a, a definite form undefined form until the evening I'm about to describe. And so for 18 months I wandered supporting myself barely by the traveling canvas. It was often a difficult and lonely experience. There were occasions where I doubted myself and wondered why I had abandoned my photojournalism, but there was also a sense of not fully disclosed purposefulness in what I was doing. When the doubting subsided, there was a sense of this secret map just out of view, but that was guiding me in certain directions. I also knew that certain very strange events, anomalous experiences that had occurred at various parts of my life, were points on that secret map. At times I felt like there was some residual effect from the anomalous experience in Seattle. I felt altered in a way that was hard to define. My nervous system felt keyed up And there was an implicit expectation that more strangeness was around the corner. Some strange things did happen, but they stopped short of being dramatically paranormal. Nevertheless, it was an intense few months uh, that generated a few hundred pages of journal writing, but I'm not sure if others will see the connections to the main thrust of the story, so for now I'll pass over them. Suffice to say that the travels of spring and summer were over and I had returned to my home base in Colorado and was canvassing there. It was a dark and windy October evening. Autumn leaves swirling around my feet, gusts of wind almost throwing me off balance as I had to keep canvassing, as I tried to keep canvassing. This part of Colorado is a high desert and prone to very high winds. Wind, even more than rain, can make canvassing impossible. People don't want to open their doors when the wind is that high. To someone ensconced in a nice warm house, the intrusion of the wind and of the canvasser blur in their minds. To them, you seem like this vaguely person-shaped creature blown in by the howling winds, a fanatical scarecrow wielding a clipboard with papers crackling and whipping about in the wind. I had just made the decision to quit for the evening. Almost as if gravity had lessened, I felt my step become lighter on the other side of the decision. I was walking swiftly down a tree-lined avenue, The trees were struggling in the wind and i saw that some had already lost branches instead of sympathy for the trees i felt more satisfied in my decision to quit a tree branch could easily fall in my head so to continue canvassing threatened life and limb self-satisfaction with my decision-making process was diverted as i approached a house that seemed to be weirdly illuminated a flickering of pink and blue lights seemed to be reflecting off the white vinyl siding they could have been christmas lights But Halloween was only a week away, and Halloween lights are usually orange. The lights shimmered and moved. I drew closer till I stood beside the house. But where are the lights coming from? There was a field behind the house, and I saw glimmers of light out there, but the, the gusts blowing in my face seemed to blur my vision. What I saw looked like a ring of sparklers seen through fog or colored glowing smoke whipping around in the wind. It looked like a cross between an aurora borealis and a dirt devil. Implacably curious, I walked between the houses, toward the field, all the while fighting a fierce headwind. My mind raced, trying to explain what I was seeing. Maybe I was witnessing the birth of a tornado that was pulsing with ball lightning, or luminescent plasma, or aurora borealis, or no no this was outside any known category this vortex was a shocking anomaly i was both frightened and transfixed by the spinning of it it was more than spinning it was like looking up through the eye of a tornado but it was a tornado not of wind but of luminous scintillating filaments each of these filaments which seemed to have no beginning and no end twisted and spun each along its own axis they looked like glowing strands of double helix DNA hooked up like plumbing router snakes to invisible turbines spinning and whipping them around the tornado. Even more bizarre, these twisting, spinning, spiraling filaments of light formed a pulsing funnel, a funnel that folded back and in on itself again and again. Air rushed away from the singularity, and the resulting gusts blasted me nearly off my feet. I could not retreat from it. I had a strong feeling, later confirmed, that it was there specifically for my benefit. In my whole body, the awareness dawned that I beheld a portal, perhaps a wormhole made of spinning, vibrating, hyperdimensional superstrings. I knew that my finger trembled above the reset button, that I hesitated at the threshold of of a hole torn open in the Babylon matrix. A gentle voice I heard inside my head asked me to step into it. I can remember the wind blasting me, color and light exploding before me, into me, and then blankness, silence. A slight wind fading off into the night, and I stood in a field, a field of sagebrush and high desert grasses, and it was the same field I had been in. I knew this somehow as a certainty. I was in the same place, but there were no houses, no streetlights, nothing man-made. It was still Colorado. But it did not have the name Colorado. It was just a high desert land that was, that was and it had always been, untouched by man, white man, red man, not any kind of man. Above were clouds drifting in silvery moonlight, and far above the clouds what looked like a distant aurora borealis of pink and blue lights receding into the darkness of space. The field was a mesa of sagebrush, grasses, Here and there were boulders and pinyon trees and everywhere silence, stillness, vastness, the night air empty of human sound, empty of a single human thought besides my own. I knew in my whole body that I was still on the earth, but this earth lived and breathed and dreamed untroubled by the nightmare spawn, the human species. I was an and sorry for the sounds, this is obviously not a recording studio, so hopefully the homemade disc of this will, yeah, bulk rather than seem unprofessional. I was an alien presence standing there in my blue nylon parka. My metal clipboard was gone, but my camera utility bag of black weathered nylon was still buckled to my waist and I felt it as an anomalous artifact, a thing of weird polymers, lenses, plastic, chemicals, electronics, extruded into a world of organic virginity. I scanned the moonlit mesa, turning slowly to see the whole horizon, and when I came back to my starting point, I saw that a figure now stood a few paces from me, a boy with large gray eyes. He stepped forward, and I saw that he was the boy, or what had seemed like a boy, when I had met him several months ago in Seattle. Did you send the portal to me, I asked. Instinctively, I felt that in this encounter I needed to be proactive to engage the strange being and not merely react to him. Yes, I did. Graciously, the boy paused and maintained an alert silence for many moments, sensing that I needed time. A gentle invitation hung in the air. Speaking aloud was such a crude and confrontational way to communicate. It intruded on the restful sound of the wind blowing across the mesa. He would continue to speak aloud if I preferred, but telepathic communication was so much subtler and more elegant. I assented by maintaining silent eye contact with him as we allowed time to perceive the other without the intrusion of words. This boy was not a boy. Not necessarily anything i could fully name but whatever else he might be he was certainly a highly intelligent and potent being endowed with an array of magical powers although i couldn't fully name what he was the word elf flashed into my intuition and i knew that word applied to him he was not an elf in some fairy tale sort of way no he was the biological type elf revealed to my bodily perception He was a fully realized personification of a species that many of us have sensed and that some people partially embody, is a species that we long for and sense nearby, a species that lives in parallel with us. Recognizing another species is a deeply embodied function. When you see a spider or banana you don't have to think a whole lot about it. Your body is able to register such easily recognizable biological forms on almost a cellular level. Similarly, when I encountered this being, I registered him on a cellular level as a potent being, shimmering at the edges of his cloaked fields with concealed magical powers. I felt energized and enlivened as my energy field expanded in his presence. Time slowed down around him, and perceiving him, my cells registered the physical presence of a higher biological. And perceiving that shifted the core of my being. And we should all be both aware and wary about the fact that encountering a very high-energy being, a a physical or non-physical entity that has real power, is a very precarious, often highly dangerous moment which will, at the very least, alter us forever. I decided to break the silence with a telepathic question. Who are you? You can call me Jeremiah. I'm a traveler from another realm, a traveler across timelines, who has come to your realm for many reasons, some of which I know and some of which I do not. I'm an adept of the Virilian, an alchemical art of transformation, which allows me to shift between realms, alter the way I appear and achieve many other purposes. I have come to you because we share common ancestors and I sense that we have inner purposes which are aligned. I'm struggling to record this conversation, by the way, especially Jeremiah's side of it because he communicated through a multi-layered level telepathy that was more images and feelings and words. The paths, the parts that were words, often seem like words that my mind formed as an interpretation of what came from him in different modalities. When I try to flatten this depth of communication into language, it tends to sound more like me interpretations from the word-forming part of my mind, the depth of feeling in what he said, the cascade of images that often illustrated a single word or phrase like realms and virillion gets lost in translation. Why did you bring me here? This is a realm closely parallel to the one you come from. It It will allow you a clearer view of your realm than is possible when you are immersed in it. From this vantage, you will be able to see hidden life forms that cohabit your realm and feed off of your kind. I knew what he was referring to. Do you mean the mind parasites? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. You have done well compared to most of your kind in becoming aware of them and seeking to be vigilant about them. Your will to be vigilant about them is part of what brings us together here at this moment. You and your kind need to see what feeds upon you. You need to behold the feeders, to bring that which manipulates you and harvests you out of the shadows and into the light of awareness. The implications of this were chilling, but not unknown to me. Still, he was silent for a few moments, giving me time to absorb the impact of what he expressed, which was, a powerful confirmation of a dark possibility I'd long been aware of. Jeremiah's gray-green eyes were focused on me. They were highly alert, but not intrusive, and he was calm and perfectly patient, even gracious in every look and gesture. A light wind moved across the mesa, stirring sagebrush around us. Jeremiah lifted his left hand, palm facing the night sky, and there was a cobalt blue sphere hovering about 10 centimeters above the center of his palm. It looked like a sphere of the highest grade of blue sapphire, about four centimeters in diameter, except that it had an internal luminosity. It was an energy source, and it was alive the way a cell or a star is alive. And the feeling of its aliveness was calm, clear, and aware. The optical precision, clarity, and beautiful midnight blue color of this orb were also its energetic properties, the qualities of its aliveness and awareness. Jeremiah held his hand steadily. Allow me to look into the deep blue depths of the orb. Think of this as medicine, Jeremiah explained, an orb of blue sapphire elemental manifested through the virillion. To behold it is to have it with you. Behold it in your imagination, see it in your mind's eye, and you also partake of this medicine, for its manifestation is not limited by matter, time, or space. I felt its power, a power of calm and penetrating vision. I see that you are wearing some silver jewelry. As you look into the orb, look also at these silver objects in your mind's eye. The request was unexpected, but I did as he said. And saw these silver objects which I had worn for many years. Two of the objects carried sapphires, a ring with a faceted dome of cobalt blue and an amulet bearing a large purplish star sapphire. And then I knew why he had called my attention to these objects. I had chosen them for a purpose I hadn't fully comprehended until that moment. They were designed like tuning forks to resonate with the energy of this orb. It was as if These items of jewelry were carefully tuned antennae, and these were energies that I needed to protect me from the mind parasites, or feeders, as Jeremiah called them. Jeremiah took a step closer to me and gently brought the orb near my body. I could feel some of the silver objects, especially the amulet, humming in sympathetic response. At the same time, I could feel a subtle realignment Of the energies that flowed through my bodily organs you and your silver objects will now resonate more strongly with this medicine even after you cross out of this realm the silver objects will offer you some protection but keep them within your personal field do not put them aside or let others handle them you live in a predatory realm but if others try to take these objects or this medicine from you by force or deception by direct or subtle means will work against them the Virilian sapphire elemental has a virtue that cannot be stolen it can only be received as a gift and only the worthy can receive the gift Jeremiah fell silent for many long moments while the orb floated above his palm the stillness of the Mesa all around us the blue of the orb was deep and my gaze was was mesmerized by the depths of the sapphire It was a gift of energy and awareness to behold this elemental orb, and Jeremiah seemed to be encouraging me to draw as much energy from it as I could. As I gazed into the cobalt-blue depths of the sphere, I felt the infusion of its calm and penetrating clarity. I allowed it to fill my field of view, as Jeremiah's gentle telepathy whispered softly in the background. The medicine of this sphere brings you clarity and inner strength. Your mind is relatively strong and stable for your kind, but if you choose to see the feeders, the stability will be sorely challenged. When you see the feeders, try to keep this elemental in your mind's eye. Tell others of your kind to do this if they find the feeders trying to overwhelm them. Those, those who are sincere will find that they can also summon and manifest the Orb of Aurelian Sapphire Elemental. I'm not sure how much time elapsed. For a time there was just the blue orb and in the background Jeremiah and the Mesa. And then Jeremiah asked very gently, the telepathic overlay very expressive of the seriousness of the choice. Are you willing to look at the feeders? And suddenly I wasn't so sure if I was willing. I sensed the edge of the abyss but I knew my life only allowed for one possible answer and I willed myself to say yes. And looked down. I looked down and it took several long heartbeats before I was willing to let what my eyes scanned fully enter my mind. Attached to my body, emerging from my body, running through my body, was a broken lattice of dark filaments, undulating filaments like a broken spider web spun of black silk, moving chaotically like the tentacles of a sea anemone. I knew that each of the filaments was a kind of nerve cell, a shadowy black neuron with infinitely complex dendrites and interconnections with other threads of tissue. It was continually reconfiguring itself to create new interconnections and networks. Its activity was intelligently directed and oriented toward the efficient and invisible absorption of my life energy. It was highly aware of me as host, as primary food source, and adapted itself continuously to keep me as a blood pump and energy source within its neural network. I was like an organ living within a vampiric brain. The dendrites and axons of black spider silk undulated, but also pulsated in a dissonant rhythm that had some particular horror for me. I stared at it for a moment and suddenly comprehended the horror. It was the inversion of my arterial pulsation, the anti-heartbeat of my heartbeat. This pulsating lattice of tissue was like a capillary suction pump. It beat in perfect counter-rhythm to my heartbeat because as my heart pumped blood out, the lattice sucked in, not blood, but vital energy. The rhythm and counter-rhythm were so perfectly aligned that I was not clear if I was merely tissue. An organ inside of its body or if it was a parasitic tissue that surrounded my own body. Something about the light absorbing blackness of the filaments made them insidious tendrils of energy suction and also rendered them invisible to ordinary human eyesight. At certain nodes of the web a nexus of dendrites formed a densely entangled bulbous thicket of black nerve tissue. There was space inside these bulbous nodes And inside that space were pale, worm-like parasites. These worms had the pale silvery luminosity of a hungry moon whose light was merely the reflection of a host energy source. These moon worms were part of a complex and delicately counterbalanced parasitic ecosystem, an ecosystem for which I was the food source. The equilibrium of this ecosystem had been shocked, even shattered, by my displacement to this green realm. This was why the web of parasitic life undulated and agitated in an agitated chaotic state. It was a broken lattice. Its outer edges were loose filaments of spindly neurons whose dendrites had been yanked off. Only dismembered axons remained, weaving in amputated torment, as though they sought to be reconnected to the larger web, the planetary matrix of tissue to which they had been so densely interconnected before I entered the portal. Sorry for the noises. I had been displaced to a green realm, a realm which was not infected with this vast network of parasitic tissue. All that I saw was the broken remnant of the web that had closely surrounded my body and somehow survived crossing over. This was but the smallest part of the mind-parasite matrix that had always harvested my energy, its perpetual suction, a hidden, insidious taxation of my every pulse of life energy. But now it lay before me, shocked and vulnerable, and weird as this sounds, I almost felt pity for it. It was torn asunder from its planetary matrix, And unsure of itself, chaotically trying to reconfigure so as to cocoon around me and tighten its embrace and tighten its embrace of its only remaining host. My mind almost unraveled as I gazed at this alien life-form, for I was seeing that which it is not permitted to see. Then my visual perception blurred for a moment as color erupted, and it took a moment to realize that These were Jeremiah's hands moving with blurred speed. His fingertips projected flames or jets of multicolored energy as they darted around me. With uncanny quickness and precision, Jeremiah was freeing me, filament by filament, from this parasitic matrix. The feeling was ecstatic, euphoric, as a million hungry little mouths were removed from my skin, a million points of constriction and fear that I had no idea even existed because I had never before been free from their insidious suction. I felt my energy and awareness blossoming. My spirit was spinning outward, dancing and singing into the mesa, a glorious emergence as parasitic cobwebs vanished into the high desert night. There were a few moments of euphoria before I realized that the celebration was premature. I was free, but the hungry web still thrived on earth, the predatory, parasite-riddled realm that I inhabited with seven billion of my brothers and sisters. I saw so many of my fellow humans going about their days, going about their day, gazing downward, many with broken spirits. Above their bent heads was a dark, coagulated sky, flowing and undulating all around them and through them was this insidious and invisible webwork, the Parasite Matrix. Their bodies were not moving through free space, but a latticework of hungry filaments that were a hidden taxation and dark influence on their every thought and emotion. While I stood for the moment on a green world, they lived on the surface of a vampiric brain whose tendrils sucked hungrily at the sweet ethers of human suffering. All their fear, pain, hatred, jealousy, addictive passions, and lethargic indulgences fed this dark brain inner vision was leading me to the forbidden knowledge and i wanted to cringe from it but i also felt it was an inescapable duty to go further as i stood there on the mesa a terrible vision flickered into my mind i saw the gleaming twin towers and i knew this was early in the morning of september eleventh, two 2001 it was a beautiful late summer day of sunshine and blue skies the twin towers were still perfectly intact and people were going about their business but the latticework of invisible filaments surrounding them was in a state of extreme excitement and accelerated growth massing and swarming around the towers was an increasing density of pulsating nerve tissue as I watched as the seconds to the first impact ticked down I saw the towers become a mass of hungry black vines, the axons and dendrites of the vampiric brain, which was sprouting shoots of suctioning tissue into this particular place and time. The parasite matrix knew what was coming, a great exploding feast of dark energy, a feast of terror about to erupt. And then I saw the horror of its living puppet show Axons and dendrites of its will and ravenous hunger were wired into the puppet brains of the terrorists so that the dark brain actually looked out at the gleaming towers through the eyes of its puppets. The towers gleamed in its ravenous mind. It craved with sexual frenzy to rupture those towers, to pop them, to tear into them like a starving rabid bear tearing into hives full of golden honey. The honey it craved was shock, fear, horror, and all the blood. Blood vaporizing in the fiery combustion of exploding jet fuel. There was honey within the towers, but also sweet ethers of human suffering flowing toward them as the world's attention focused on this eruption of terror. Hungry tendrils sucked greedily at the calorically rich harvest of negative human emotions. The collapse of each tire of each tower was a vampiric orgasm, a suctioning implosion of ravenous feeding that shivered and pulsated through the planetary matrix. My whole being trembled as I beheld the godhead of evil, the face of the planetary parasite, the Medusa, whose hair of snakes was some early vision of these neurons and dendrites of pulsating evil. Before the Medusa could paralyze me with dread, my vision pulled back, and I felt the influence of the Viridian Sapphire Elemental. Its cobalt blue depths brought calm and penetrating clarity. Intuition suffused my perception—a sense of deeper pattern and process. I perceived that the parasitic brain was being exposed by its ravenous greed and need for vampiric orgasm. The host was awakening the insidious suction of its webwork once cloaked in shadows was being revealed but there was something more to see i saw a man with dark eyes looking out of the window of a high office tower he was a man of great wealth and power but his spirit was shriveled and his bodily tissues soured he was dying of a metastasizing cancer and yet his mind was still focused on power and cruel strategies I saw that the vampiric matrix had wispy smoke-like tendrils whispering in the background of his mind. From another angle of vision, I saw that his body had spinnerets where his genital, stomach, heart, and mouth should be. Silently the spinnerets were emitting axons and dendrites of parasitic nerve tissue flowing out into the larger world. Vision shifted again. I saw a stream of people walking on a busy city street. The vision was cinematic, but in an almost cliched way. I saw several blocks of people walking on a large and busy city street. Their hazy outlines, which were highlighted by rays of a morning sun, seemed to be compacted together by telephoto compression. The next vantage was a shift to both slow motion and wide-angle perspective, so that looming individual people, each of them casting an elongated shadow, Floated down the street, I saw that each of them had spinnerets under their clothing. Dark filaments of nerve tissue were being emitted by everyone. An atmosphere of web work like cotton candy stretched into near invisibility. tendrils of smoke whispering at the edges of their minds promoted their own promoted their own dark thoughts and these thoughts conventionally seen as interior individual occurrences, were actually an organic lattice work engulfing the planet. The spinnerets transmitted, but also like transceiver antennae, they received and pulsated with currents running through the global brain. I saw that we are the wet work of this global brain. The dark tissue is generated by us, by all who follow the dark whisperers. The vision shifted again and now I was perceiving the inside of a series of people. I was not seeing tissue, um, but different configurations of how they related to the dark brain. Some few people were nearly hollowed out. Their vacuous interiors were echo chambers for the dark whispers. These were the hollow folk, the mechanized agents of the parasitic web work. Most people had cores of self-awareness with them, but these cores varied considerably in radiance and structure. Some of these cores were like the collapsing centers of dying stars, but others were vibrant, even brilliant. Some people were actually aware of the dark whispers. They knew they could choose whether they acted on them or not. Some few people had cores that emitted pulsations of light, which incinerated dark whispers and hungry nerve tissue. These people emitted tendrils of light, which illuminated whole sections of the global mind. Glimpsing the inner configurations of various people, I continued to be amazed by the variety. The scans of some people were appalling, others were inspiring, and some were both inspiring and appalling. I saw a charismatic and highly intelligent politician tendrils of dark, infused with light, emitted from a core that was like a swollen sun. In many cases, it was hard to tell where the human left off and the parasite began. And then it was as if Jeremiah sealed the breach he had torn in the veil. The terrible visions dissolved, and it was just us standing in the silent mesa. I took some deep breaths, feeling the stillness Peace of the mesa. Jeremiah put his arm around me, his hand on my shoulder, in a very human and touching gesture of comfort. Words did not intrude into the telepathic bond between us. There was a sense of some vast parallelism between us, which had brought us together. We were travelers, gazing out at an unbounded horizon, shimmering with interdimensional portals. I knew somehow that we shared some common ancestor. And I wondered if some ancestor of Jeremiah, some early proto-elf, might have been born as a parasitized mortal, a human mutant who had somehow developed enough energy to break free of the Matrix and become the first elf. Was Jeremiah a messenger from the evolutionary future of my species? Could the elves, this race of changelings and interdimensional travelers, immortal and magically endowed, be the higher form, the new species that Homo sapiens, bleeding and bedraggled, was struggling toward, struggling through webs of clinging infected tissue that sucked at us greedily, striving with all its dark will to hold back the day when we too become like the elves and join those who await us in a greener realm. As I stood and looked at Jeremiah under the moonlight, his form shimmered for a moment and then altered. He appeared differently now, but I knew it was still him, it was the same essence, only now I sensed that he was more fully revealed. He was allowing me to see him in his physical body, without cloaks or guises, and I knew that for Jeremiah this was a a gesture of ultimate trust. He was now somewhat taller. His hair was longer, and the color of dark gold, and his eyes were gray-green. His eyes had the depth of one who has survived many sorrows and the far-seeing quality of one who has seen through many veils. Overlooking his slightly pointed ears, Jeremiah appeared to be an exceptionally graceful, androgynous adolescent human, but there was none of the, the temporary look of human adolescence. His body had a completely finished quality, a radiant vitality that seemed beyond mere youth, and a kind of charisma that was uncanny, magical glamour. He was clothed in what seemed like dark velvets, mostly green and brown, and he wore a cloak of similar material that seemed to blend with the night. His clothing was loose and comfortable and left his hands, neck, and face exposed, and here there was a shocking incongruity in his appearance. His skin was slashed with fresh scars. They seemed pink and in a healing phase, but there were so many of them long twisting lines as if he had been slashed from head to foot head to foot with knives. I felt a shuddering certainty that his whole body was scarred in this way and sensed these wounds as a glowing lattice of pain. Somehow the perfection of Jeremiah's elf body had been slashed with mortal scars, and the incongruity of these wounds cast a shadow of vulnerability on the preternatural beauty of his kind. Jeremiah gave me a few moments to adjust to seeing him before he spoke. Since you have had the courage to see the feeders, it is only right that I lay aside all disguise and appear before you as I really am. The wounds you see are a small part of the price I had to pay to earn my passage, to make the crossing to your realm." Jeremiah was silent for some moments. I have also had to encounter the feeders, but in a different form, one that preys upon the elves, What you have seen are like the strands of a web or like the drones that serve a hive but at the center of the web is a spider deep in the hive is a queen we may need to talk more of these dark matters tonight but perhaps in more comfortable surroundings i have prepared a small camp not far from here where we can make a fire and have something to drink jeremiah gestured for me to follow him it was a gracious gracious gesture which came mostly through the eyes Besides the telepathic atmosphere that existed between us, Jeremiah had a way of speaking and gesturing through his eyes that was both eloquent and highly effective. As we walked through the mesa, I wondered if Jeremiah needed things said aloud. I had a feeling that speech was for him a primitive custom which he kept up for my sake, a gesture of polite respect toward the accustomed ways of another kind. We walked silently, <clears throat> but I could feel that sensation of talk was no break in our communication. Jeremiah was aware of what I was thinking and feeling. It did not feel intrusive, it felt natural, more natural than what I had ever felt before. So that now, when I walk down the street with a close friend and don't know what he's thinking, that seems so strange. A shocking omission and blankness that seems weird, artificial, almost like a punishment. I was aware of Jeremiah just as he was aware of me. Once he had appeared in his true form, something opened up, a portal in the form of a shared space with another entity. Sharing awareness with Jeremiah altered me. For one thing, it profoundly shifted my experience of time. Time slowed around him, and eye contact with him made permanent alterations in my sense of time and reality. Mostly I became aware of how much more we could be, how much more we will be one day but I also sensed from Jeremiah an awareness of how much we are something intense right now. He saw human beings as survivors in a realm of amazing trial and hardship. He viewed our kind with respect and a kind of horrified fascination, like we might view Siberian tigers, eyes glowing amber in the night as they fed on a half-frozen wolf carcass in a desolate expanse of frigid tundra. You see, when Jeremiah dropped his guise, I became aware of many things at once. The nature of our relationship became completely transparent. I knew that Jeremiah had traveled on some terrible solitary journey, a great crossing to get to this realm, and his separation from his kind and his world might be irreversible. I knew that we were allies, and I felt his need of me. His destiny required of him that he build a bridge between his kind and mine, and he needed me to build that bridge. And I knew these things in this completely transparent way. No thoughts needed to lead up to realizations. It was simply and naturally apparent that we were allies, that each of us had pursued a difficult quest, but these quests had intersected and were now become parallel journeys. The walk was longer than I expected. The the Mesa seemed to go on forever walking across it in the moonlight, night winds sweeping by us, time unfolded in a way I'd never experienced before. As we walked, my understanding of Jeremiah, my understanding of myself, grew. The mesa felt so empty of human chatter, this whole realm did, and Jeremiah's essence was the clearest of signals in the open night air. We approached a rock formation giant sand-blasted boulders of redstone surrounded by desert plants. The curvilinear contours of the redstone emerged, grew out of the high desert expanse, and through Jeremiah's awareness, I felt the deep indigo light around them. This was a power spot, a place of great medicine, and in the center of this crown of redstone was a fire ring created with ritualistic perfection, a circle of precisely fitted rocks, with a teepee of dry sticks at its center. Beside the fire ring was a cloth bag, almost hard to see, of the same velvety, self-camouflaging material as Jeremiah's cloak. Jeremiah lit the fire, an arc of energy from eyes and fingertips, and we sat beside it, its orange glow pulsated with warmth, and sparks flew up and disappeared into the high desert night. Jeremiah reached into his cloth bag and produced a beautiful flask, which he handed to me. The flask was an artifact of another realm and of an unknown material that looked like polished bronze but was apparently some sort of lightweight ceramic with the adamantine quality of some very hard gemstone. The cap of the flask was inset with what appeared to be a beautiful cabochon emerald. Jeremiah gestured with his hand in a drinking motion. Carefully I unscrewed the emerald cap and brought the flask to my lips. The liquid that flowed into my body was... It would almost be an understatement to call it a magical elixir. It filled my body, every cell, with elemental colors of light, radiant nourishment, a chorus of voices of colored light. A a chorus of voices of colored light, the harmonizing energies of elements, gemstones, stars, coursing through me, transforming me as pure vitality and color, energizing my core. One sip of this elixir was more than sufficient, and I carefully screwed the cap back on, feeling the deep green medicine of the emerald, and passed it back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah looked into the fire, but I could tell he was looking inward, looking into memory, and his recollection was an act of great courage. And that was the end of chapter two of Parallel Journeys, and I just wanted to thank all of you for listening. To any mutants, any proto-elves that might be out there, to anybody that would actually listen to something like this, uh, we are all on parallel journeys, and I wish you very well on yours. This is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com.